So today I am so pleased to talk to Dr. Jessica Flake. Jessica received a Bachelor's of Science degree in Psychology from Northern Kentucky University in 2010, a Master's of Arts degree in Quantitative Psychology from James Madison University in 2012, and a PhD in Measurement, Evaluation, and Assessment from the University of Connecticut in 2015. From 2015 to 2018, she worked as a postdoctoral researcher in quantitative psychology at York University and in educational psychology at the University of Virginia. In 2018, she started her lab in the quantitative psychology area of the Department of Psychology at McGill University. Her lab researches the development and application of latent variable models for use in educational and social psychological research and the improvement of measurement practices in psychology more broadly. Jessica is also the Assistant Director for Methods at the Psychological Science Accelerator and a member of the Technical Advisory Panel of the Enrollment Management Association. Her work is multidisciplinary, collaborating across quantitative methods, social and educational psychology, with publications in Nature, Human Behavior, Psychological Science, Psychological Methods, the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, and Contemporary Educational Psychology, among others. Today, we'll be discussing Jessica's 2021 article in Educational Psychologist entitled Strengthening the Foundation of Educational Psychology by Integrating Construct Validation into Open Science Reform, which is part of an entire special issue on educational psychology in the open science era. Jessica, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So can you give us just like a quick little summary of the main focus of your article, and then we'll start talking more about it? Yeah, sure. This is an interesting article. Um, it was the first article that I've ever written where it was just me writing about my ideas, which was fun, but also kind of intimidating. But I took it as an opportunity to just reflect on some of the work that I've been doing over the past four or five years about measurement practices and open science. And so it integrates thinking uh, some of the thinking that I've been doing about the need to improve measurement practices with the current status of open science reform. So in the article, I talk about um, issues of transparency and rigor and measurement practices. And then I connect that to, well, what happens if you have those practices going on and you try to replicate that research or you want to replicate research on a large scale? How do those intransparent or invalid measurement practices make replication research less meaningful or limit the impact of replication research. So I go through some of the work that I've done to understand those issues. And then I try to offer some solutions of if educational psychology is going to undertake large scale replication and try to improve measurement practices, what can they do next? So that's great. And one thing that I thought was so important about your article was that you really shined a light on what I think is a maybe underappreciated aspect of the open science movement, and that's measurement. I don't know that measurement's gotten as much attention as maybe it could or should in the open science movement. And I think educational psychology, as you wrote, is well positioned to help kind of bring that focus. And your article, I think, does that really well. So in your article, you've got this great figure. And it's a hierarchy of research processes that support valid study conclusions. And so it's like a triangle, right? We, we like triangles. So at the top of the triangle, there are the conclusions from a study. And below that, and kind of the middle of the triangle are, you know, statistics and analysis and all those things. And then the foundation of the triangle, the bottom, you talk about how philosophy, substantive theory, measurement, and research design all kind of provide a support for that. So that I think is underappreciated and people don't think about that foundation as much. What are some of the problems that can result when we don't pay enough attention to these ideas in the foundation? Well, I think a part of the 
emphasis early on in the open science movement was this middle section, um, data analysis and statistics. And I think that in psychology, we do often want to be very quantitative. We want to be uh, science. Quantitative methods are necessary to be a science. And so there is a lot of data analysis practices that we can change or improve. But that happens after you've collected the data with certain research designs, with certain theories at play, with certain instruments. So, you know, s- some examples might be that you've, you've collected data, you want to study students' motivation, your instruments actually measure anger. And so you try to make a conclusion about students' motivation. It doesn't matter how good your, your regression model is or whether or not you've met the assumptions of the statistical test, that the instrument doesn't produce scores that convey the meaning that you need to make the conclusion. Statistical practices can't really fix those problems. And it would be the same. I think a lot of people in the replication movement have talked more about the role of manipulations and covariates. And so you can imagine the same thing. You have a study, your manipulation fails, or there's some contaminant. It can be really difficult to fix that with statistical practices. Mm -hmm. You can't really go back and rerun the study with a statistical test. So some of the foundational things are the things that go into producing the data. And sometimes you can fix problems with producing the data with statistics, but oftentimes you can't. And those tend to be the deeper, more theoretical issues. The, The theory doesn't make sense. The experimental design doesn't give you the control that you thought, or the instruments don't produce scores that mean what you think they mean, which is what I've been thinking about mostly. Yeah. And I really like how you talked about there may be different stages of the research process. And I think the open science movement, which I think is a good movement, has focused a lot of attention on what you do after the data are collected. So focusing on good practices, avoiding p-hacking or the garden of forking paths or all these other things that can lead to findings that actually won't replicate well. But your article focuses on what you do prior to collecting the data, which is equally as important. And measurement and the instruments you choose are a huge part of that. And as you said, you might think your measure captures one idea when it captures another or doesn't capture it very well. And so you're you're really talking about measurement validity, or at least one of the things you're talking about is measurement validity. And there may be some people listening to this podcast that know a lot about it, but I suspect there's a decent number of people that don't really know a ton about measurement validity. So can you give us just like a brief like overview of what that is and, and how you figure it out? Yeah, that's a challenge. A brief overview is a challenge, <laughs> but um, you know, I you can get a PhD in measurement, I, I figured out. Um, <laughs> Take your entire PhD but- <laughs> and sum it up in two or three sentences, please. Yeah, but I, I think there's a few big conceptual takeaways that are pretty um, straightforward, which is that a part of the research process is turning ideas into numbers. So going back to this idea that you might want to study students' motivation, say, you have to find some way to figure out how motivated students are. So if you're a 10 and I'm an 8, I have less motivation than you. And that is a claim that needs evidence, just like any other claim that we make in science. How do we know that if I'm an 8 and you're a 10, that I have less motivation than you? And that's really what construct validity is about. It's about making sure that those scores have the meaning that you think they have. And just like when you make any claim that an intervention works or that X causes Y, there's a lot of different ways to validate that score and that claim. In construct validity, there's a big emphasis on quantitative methods 
And I think actually what you were saying about the foundational processes versus the statistical processes, measurements, a you know, it's, it's a tricky aspect of the research process because it's really both. So there's this theorizing aspect of it, which is like, thinking about what motivation is, how broad it is, how wide it is, what are the facets of it. And then there's this also this quantitative process, which is, well, when we make an instrument and we get responses, do those responses behave in a way that represents the theory that, that we set about trying to capture the phenomenon in the theory? And so there's this difficult, or I find interesting, but also it is difficult blend of theory and expertise on the substantive side, but also quantitative methods and different quantitative approaches you can take to analyzing data to see, well, did this instrument produce scores consistent with what we think? Without getting into all the different quantitative methods and all the different uh, theories of validity, I would say it really just boils down to the score holds some meaning. How can you convince me or society that that's, that's true, that students' motivation is a thing, and that uh, this number means that the students have more of it? And the lower number means that the students have less of it. That's really helpful. Thanks. And you're right. I, I don't mean to suggest it's easy to convey. There's a lot of nuance to it. But I, I do think it's really helpful just to get people to think about validity, in particular, in comparison to reliability. So I think, you know, if you read a lot of empirical articles, quantitative articles in educational psychology, you often see reliability scores reported. You less often see validity evidence presented. And so I think it's helpful to differentiate those two and your description of how theory informs the construction and validation of scores from a scale, but then also there are some quantitative methods of doing that as well. Those two ways of doing that are really different than just looking at reliability. And so I think it's helpful to to talk about that and get people thinking more broadly about what it means to have an instrument and make a case that it's telling us what we think it's telling us. Yeah, that reliability point is is really important because some of the systematic review of measurement practices that I've done over the past few years show that reliability really is doing all of the lifting Mm -hmm. for validity. So if people collect data from an instrument, what they'll typically do is just report a reliability coefficient. And like you said, you know, reliability quantifies how consistent people are at responding within themselves. So Mm -hmm. I take 10 questions, I answer consistently. You take those 10 questions, you answer consistently. That we are consistent doesn't tell us that we're giving information about our motivation versus something else. Mm-hmm. It's this simple quantitative thing that we can report in a paper. And even though everybody seems to know that reliability isn't validity, it, it's the only validity evidence that we often see in the published research for instruments. It's the most common thing that people report. I'm not saying they shouldn't report it, they should but it doesn't convey all of that information that you would like to know about an instrument. Yeah. Yeah. It's necessary, but it's not sufficient. Right. You know, so Mm -hmm. I always think very simplistically, like I could have a scale that reliably tells me I'm a hundred pounds heavier than I really am. That scale Mm -hmm. is reliable. It's not valid. It's not telling me the right number, but it's reliable. So validity really matters too. And you, you coined a phrase in another article that I really like, you talked about questionable measurement practices, QMPs. What are those? Questionable measurement practices are maybe a stepchild or a, a brother, stepbrother or something to uh, questionable research practices. And simply they're just um, practices that raise questions about the measures when you're reading research. And those questions really put doubts in your mind about whether or not the study conclusions are going to be valid. 
So this is not having information about the instruments, not knowing how many items there were, where the instruments came from, not understanding where the scores came from or how they were produced. A concrete example is, you know, say across three studies, researchers are measuring self-esteem and motivation. And in one study, they use one self-esteem measure. And in another study, they use a different self-esteem measure. And in the third study, they combine the two together. And you're thinking, why? Why did they do that? So if you have questions, the measurement practices are questionable. Mm. Um, and I, an important aspect of being questionable is that you just don't know. So it might be questionable because of you know nefarious intent to cheat or lie or <laughs> misrepresent, but it could also just be questionable because of ignorance. Mm -hmm. I didn't think too hard about putting those two instruments together to make one score, and I just did it. Um, or it, it could be for a good reason that isn't reported in the paper. So it can range in that regard. Questionable practices could be rigorous. They could be justified, but you just don't know because you don't have the information. Yeah, I think that's an important way to think about it, right? So I always like to think researchers have the best of intentions and they're trying to do the right thing. We know that there have been some high profile instances where, you know, people were kind of doing nefarious or devious things, but for the vast majority of researchers are trying to do the right thing. And some of them just might not have been as lucky as you were or as I were to go to a PhD program where measurement validity was a focus and people talked about it. Sometimes people just omit things because they didn't realize it. But, you know, all these things raise, as you put it, questions and can make it difficult for people to really understand what measurements or instruments were used and how they were used and how we should interpret them. So your focus on those practices, I think, is really important. And in the article that we're talking about today, you argue for greater transparency in measurement, which I think gets at these questionable measurement practices. So what would greater transparency look like and how can greater transparency support open science? Yeah, so there's a lot of problems to solve when you just think about how can we make sure that scores represent what we think they represent. And when I when I finished my PhD, I was really interested in studying complicated things about measurement invariance and complex mm -hmm. data structures. And I started mm -hmm. reading the literature for this review and I thought, well, I can't even think about how these more complex quantitative methods could be used because I don't know basic things about the instruments. So mm -hmm. there's this sort of base level amount of transparency, which is just if people did it, it wouldn't be a problem. That's reporting the instrument, the citation to the study that it came from. If it didn't come from anywhere saying that I developed the instrument, how many items the instrument has, what are the wording of those items? What are the response scales? How are they presented? If you added five of the questions up to make one score and five other questions up to make another score, how did you do that and why? So that transparency is just adding a little bit more information to the article so that if someone else comes along, they can do what you did or they can reuse that instrument or they can run a study similar to the study that you ran. And I think it's pretty easy to solve some of those problems of transparency with sharing materials and sharing data analysis code, which some journals offer badges for having your materials open. Mm hmm. And just taking some space in the article to describe the instruments, what they're supposed to measure. A lot of people ask me questions, well, there's not space. I think if there's one thing that we should spend the space on in our papers, it's maybe less storytelling and more just what did you do and how did you do it? Mm 
-hmm. So I find this, we don't have space argument to be sort of silly. I think we have space to (laughs) make sure that when people read our papers, that they know what we did and how we did it. And that's, that's all transparency is about. It's just being able to figure out what the researchers did and how they did it. Mm -hmm. I I agree with you. It's so important. You know, as you said, you were investigating these sophisticated methods, really digging into validity and, and measurement and exploring how we can do that better. And you went to the literature and you couldn't even get the basic information you needed to do that work. And so that really does suggest that we need to devote more space in the articles to describing everything you talked about. And, you know, there's ways around space. I mean, there's online supplemental information, there's appendices, there's all these ways that you can provide the information. So I, I agree with you. I don't think space issues are really the limiting factor here. And it does strike me that there's a lot of real problematic outcomes that can result when we don't spend more time talking about measurement and discussing how we did it. And one of the ones that you bring up in the article that I I like, but always forget which is which, you talk about something called the jingle jangle fallacy, which is really important. And I just wish those words weren't so close. Can you talk to us about what the jingle jangle fallacy is and, and why it's important to think about? Yeah, I always joke that even though I have to talk about the jingle jangle fallacy a lot, often, um, I I always, when I talk about it, I put it on the slide. What's the jingle? What's the jangle? Because mm-hmm. I talk about them yep. interchangeably and I can't really get straight what's the jingle and what's the jangle. But me the, luckily, you know, I have an example here in front of me and I can double check that I'm not going to say wrong what's the jingle and what the jangle is. But before mm-hmm. that, I think there's this other broader term that maybe I should have used, which is just the naming fallacy. Mm, okay. So you want to measure something, you write some questions to measure it, and there's this leap of faith that the questions measure the thing. You have to name the thing, whether it's motivation, extroversion, anger, you get to name the thing. And you could just name it something else. Mm-hmm. It seems kind of trivial, but it's in fact, when we give names to uh, scores or instruments, they take on meaning in a way that can propagate across the literature. Mm-hmm. So there's just a simple idea, which is that you could have named it wrong, but say you have a collection of instruments and they all have the same name, but they actually measure different things. Mm-hmm. That's a jingle, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> Versus this other uh, problem, which is that things could have different names, but actually be measuring the same thing. Mm -hmm. So it's just this ability to switch this up to say an example that's always in my mind, because I've done some work on trying to measure and understand students' psychological cost. If you go into the literature, you'll see a dozen instruments measuring cost. And if you look at the items, they do measure different things. Mm-hmm. They don't all measure cost. You know, with that particular construct for the ed psych people out there, there's this aspect of difficulty or effort with cost, but there's also this emotional element and of anxiety or fear of failure or stress with mm-hmm. cost. Mm-hmm. And it's very common in the literature for people to say, oh, well, we're measuring cost. And you look at their instrument, it's all about effort. Right. So it doesn't have that emotional component. Or it's a smattering of items from different components. And if you think about across the literature, everybody thinks they're studying the same thing. When in fact, they might be studying completely different things or different facets Mm -hmm. of different things. And that conceptually, I think it's pretty obvious that that's a mess. But if you think about replicating downstream effects, Mm -hmm. it becomes a good explanation for why people might find different things. So maybe cost is 
negatively related to performance in some studies, but not in others, because some studies measure the anxiety component, whereas other studies measure the effort component. Mm -hmm. And so it's really hard to sort that out after the fact when you've used all the same names, but you're measuring different things, or you proliferate constructs that are actually the same, but you give them different names. Mm -hmm. Yikes. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that, well, you can always pick on motivation theory for, for that, where you have a lot of conceptually adjacent ideas with really different names. Yeah. And it makes it hard to know uh, where the replicable or consistent findings are because you're not sure what's what. Yeah, I, I think you explained that really well. I, I feel like I need a card in my wallet that has the jingle jangle fallacy written out on it so I can just bring it out whenever I need it. But, you know, I like the naming fallacy. That's a nice way to think about it. It really is, you know, as you said, if I say I'm measuring intelligence, you shouldn't just take me on my word. You know, you should have, well, how did you do that? And what do you mean by intelligence? Because, you know, that's a that's a fraught term. And there's a lot of real serious disagreements about what intelligence is and how you should measure it and what it is and is not. And if we don't provide transparency in our measurement, it could be that the way I measure intelligence is totally different than the way someone else measures intelligence. And so when our findings don't match up or our findings don't replicate the way people expect, it could be because of just the way we measured it. I, I think you're intelligent if you like the Philadelphia area sports teams, but no one else <laughs> might think that. And therefore, we could have very different results accordingly. So you talked about how the lack of transparency in measurement can lead to unclear results in replications. And you talked about what we should be reporting to try to increase that. What other things do you think we would need to do to make sure that not just for people who claim to be doing open science, but for all research, what are the things do we need to do to help all researchers make sure that they're treating measurement validity in a transparent and appropriate way? Well, I, I think there's easy things that are just more in the research practices domain and the workflow domain, keeping track of what you did and why you did it. Mm -hmm. You know, if you are studying certain concepts, thinking through the different ways you could measure them and just keeping track of that. I, I find it kind of interesting that some people have been so put off by the open science movement when a lot of it is just organize your work better <laughs> and, and have a plan and write the plan down. It's like, who is going to argue that you shouldn't have a plan? You know, mm -hmm. a lot of it is stuff like that. So, and it sounds obvious, but I don't know. I think it's pretty easy to do your literature review and, and you have a bunch of different constructs you're measuring and pick out a few measures and, oh, this one was cited a lot. And, and I think just being more thoughtful about selecting instruments and keeping better track of what instruments you use, why you use them, you know, write that down and wherever you keep your information about your studies, develop standard operating procedures for which instruments you use mm -hmm. and why. These are easy things that uh, you can just keep track of. And then when you go to write up your paper, it's easier to report information about your instruments. It's easy to write a section that someone else could read it and find your instrument and reuse it or understand how you scored it or, or how you formed scores or whatever. Another aspect of it, which is not as easy, is really thinking through whether or not your instrument is going to give you the information that you want. That's the actual validity work. That's not just transparency. And something that stuck out to me that got me thinking about this stuff a few years ago, having come from doing a PhD in a school of education, a lot of times in 
education, we're dealing with high stakes tests and we have the standards for educational and psychological testing to tell us what we really need to do to make sure that a high stakes test produces a score and we can use it the way we want to use it, like to admit a student or to give someone a license to practice. But we don't really have clear standards for what we should do if we want to make a claim, like a research claim. Hmm. And how much of the standards do we need to do to say that one country is more extroverted than another country? Mm -hmm. We're not assigning any high stakes scores to any people, but we are trying to generate knowledge about the way the world works. So it's high stakes in a different kind of way. And I think Mm -hmm. that's an open question. You know, anytime we're trying to make a claim about something theoretically, what do we need to do from a validity perspective to Mm -hmm. bolster that claim? I haven't figured it out, but I think, you know, some of the basic stuff that we do for high stakes tests, you know, developing theory, uh, using psychometric methods to empirically evaluate the scores, seeing if the scores, you know, behave or predict outcomes the way we think. I do think that people, if they just decided to measure something new, they just they just made it up. They probably should go through that full theoretical and quantitative process. And if they don't, I think they have to contend with this threat to validity in their study, which is that, you know, yeah, we decided to measure this thing. We hadn't really developed a measure for it, but we we made some items up and we use them. And that's a limitation mm-hmm. of the study. But I think that usually in education, this is relevant, but you see this a lot in social psychology, too. It's related to what we we're talking about with Jingle Jangle. Usually what you see is that people are studying like eight to ten constructs. Mm-hmm in a study or in a set of studies. And they're all sort of conceptually fuzzy or there's naming issues going on. And without a solid delineation of what instruments are measuring what, it becomes easy throughout the life cycle of a research project to just get really willy nilly with how you use those instruments to to add them together or to split them apart. And I don't think people do that because they wanna produce error, but it does, it can produce error. Um, and so I think just thinking through that, you know, maybe sometimes it's a less is more situation. You know, what are the key things you're measuring? Is there evidence that you're measuring them? If there are some constructs that you're working with that don't have good evidence from their instruments or theoretically, they're just not very well developed. Just know that that's something that you could do better in the next study. And you might need to devote a part of your program of research to figuring that out. Those are excellent points. I really like your distinction of high stakes research, not just being about high stakes testing, but also the kinds of inferences we're making from other kinds of studies. And particularly when you start talking about it, the example you gave was like, you know, differences across countries or cultures or contexts, you know, in this day and age, those, those kinds of publications sometimes get national attention, international attention. Suddenly people start making all these inferences about what it means and sometimes making decisions based upon it. And if we're not confident in the measurement, we need to be transparent about that because there really are some high stakes consequences that can result. Um, And as you said, I don't think the vast majority of people are trying to be deceptive, but sometimes you make a decision because you feel like, well, this is the best I can do with what I have. And if you don't make that decision transparent, a potential limitation of the measurement instrument might become obfuscated and people might attribute more validity to the scores than maybe they deserve. And as you said, that leads downstream to all these problems. So I think you did a really nice job of illustrating the importance of transparency and the importance of paying close attention to measurement in the work that we're doing. So thanks for doing that.
Yeah, hopefully it sets in. I think it's a tough sell with transparency. It's like, let us know that you didn't do as good of a job so that we can not publish your research. Me and my lab joke that it's about finding the garbage and putting it in the trash can. Mm-hmm. And it's not a very easy way to get people to do things. Hey, we want to find out if what you're doing is actually garbage so that we can put it in the trash can. But the alternative is that instead of being in the trash can, it's in the published literature. Mm, right. And so as scientists, that's we're supposed to be about, you know, making sure that the published literature is has claims in it that are valid. And so we have mm-hmm. to be willing to say, you know what, this instrument's just not going to work or this claim isn't as strong as we'd like it to be because it's lacking evidence in this way. Yeah. And I've experienced that, right? So as a more of an applied researcher, I've gathered together instruments that in the past have worked pretty well. And I've tried to administer them in the ways in which they were intended. And I've tried to be really careful. And then, you know, you get in front of the computer and you run the analysis and the reliability comes back and it's 0.5. And you just have this like sinking, like, you know, womp womp feeling in your stomach, like, oh no, it's all ruined. And, you know, I think there are things that you can try to do to uh, investigate why things aren't coming out the way that you expected them to and are there ways to kind of get at the signal and remove some of the noise but sometimes i just think honesty is the best policy and as an editor of a journal i think there are instances where it's okay to say you know this instrument wasn't great we did the best we could with it and we're going to bracket our interpretations accordingly but there's still something publishable here i mean i think that's an okay place to be you're right that there's sometimes there's it's just garbage and you can't get much from it but there's a middle ground where i wish people were more upfront about what is and is not working with their instruments so that we can have a better sense of what they found and maybe the limitations around that and i think if we create a more hospitable environment for people to be honest about measurement they'll be more likely to be transparent about it Yeah, I totally agree. I've been the reviewer with this comment to the editor that is like, I'm not sure what's going on here. The instruments are sort of slightly different across all these studies. And I just want the author to say why. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe it was less reliable in in this other study. So they removed an item. That's a decent reason to Mm -hmm. modify a scale. And I don't think it's just people trying to leave information out. I I think they think maybe it's not relevant or it's Mm -hmm. not important or it doesn't deserve the space in the paper. So they take it out and the negative consequence is that it's hard to evaluate the validity of the study, but connecting that to replication, it also becomes really difficult to replicate the study. You don't have the information. Um, There are examples from the reproducibility project psychology where they attempted to replicate 100 studies in psychology where there's at least two examples. I've reviewed all of the original studies and all of the replication reports. There's at least two examples in there where they could never figure out what the items were in the original study. Oof. And then they realized, I think, after one, that they didn't have the right wordings of the items. No, no. Geez, what's that mean for the replication? Um, right. And this happens with scoring, too. There were at least two examples where they weren't sure if they did the scoring right because the items ended up not being correlated, even though they, they had been. And going to your example... It's really tricky because you can use an instrument in the same way and it still give you some concerns that it's not producing a valid score, like mm-hmm. you said. And, and this is really relevant to replication. So the idea that you're going to do the replication, you're going to use the same instruments, and then the instruments don't behave the way that they were developed to behave. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Does that mean that you didn't replicate the study? And I think that's something that we really need to be thinking about because there's this whole sort of preliminary set of 
ways that we cannot replicate a study. So we cannot have an effective manipulation. We cannot have a reliable instrument. And all that stuff happens before you get to trying to replicate whatever the effect was in the original study, if it's a correlation or if it's a difference between groups. Mm-hmm. That's really where the issues of transparency and kind of willy-nilly practices, they hinder this ability to accumulate knowledge across studies and to do replication research. And your article does such a nice job of laying that out, right? So their measurement and measurement problems, questionable measurement practices, threaten our ability to understand the existing literature, but also threaten our ability to learn more from replications. And so the open science movement, I think, really does need to pay more attention to measurement, as you discussed in your article. And so I'm really glad that your article is part of the special issue. And I hope that both people who are doing original research and people who are doing replication research pay more attention to the measurement aspects of it. That's an exciting part of what you're contributing. So thank you. I know that you're also doing some pretty cool research on something called the Psychological Science Accelerator. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's it's actually connected to a lot of these ideas. So the Psychological Science Accelerator is a distributed laboratory network. Oh my, I think it's been four years. I've been involved with it since the very beginning. And the idea is just there's a place for researchers to go and be in this network and if the network runs a study, you can contribute data to the study. So Mm. there's researchers in over 70 countries, hundreds of labs, and I was the methodologist on our very first study. We have data from over 10,000 participants uh, across Mm. all populated world regions. So when we work together, everybody has a small part, but we can produce these data sets that are much bigger Mm -hmm. and can be more authoritative in answering a question or understanding the generalizability of a phenomenon that uh, was probably researched in North America or in Europe originally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I've been involved in that for the past three or four years, and it's really connected to this idea that when we do large-scale replication research, there are a lot of methodological and measurement challenges that just addressing them is not a part of the standard way of doing these studies. Mm-hmm. So the reproducibility project I talk about in the paper, also the mini lab studies. So these are studies that a little consortium of labs gets together and they all run the same study. Mm-hmm. So you get multiple data sets for a study these naturally end up happening across diverse geographic regions. So instruments are translated into multiple languages and there's just no protocol or practice to say, well, when we do this, how do we handle the instruments? And that was my motivation for getting involved in the Psychological Science Accelerator right away. I saw the map with all of the countries and all the researchers from all the countries. And I I called Chris Chartier, who was just getting this idea up and going. And I said, because I know him, I said, you're going to have a measurement heterogeneity problem. You need my help. (laughs) Um, And so I've been thinking about that ever since. And I developed the data and methods committee um, with Patrick Forsher. And we have a little group of researchers. We are working on, for the first time, developing an analysis protocol that will run all the instruments and all their translated versions through basic psychometric testing. Mm. And we're hopeful that if we can produce that protocol and produce a set of instruments like say an instrument's been translated into 20 languages, which is something we routinely do in the accelerator, that all those materials can be available to researchers and all the validity reports for the instruments can be available to researchers. So, you know, you want to study individualism and collectivism in Turkish, 
you have the translated version that the PSA produced and you have a psychometric report that follows a protocol that we're developing to say, well, it has this factor structure in Turkish compared to the original. It has these item properties in Turkish compared to the original. You know, Mm -hmm. we found that it was statistically equivalent in these ways. And so I I am thinking about ways if we're going to do large scale replication, how do we actually do it and make sure that the instruments are comparable? Because with the PSA or with the mini labs, for all of these studies, what happens on the back end is that the data are pooled. Mm-hmm. So that, that's the whole point is to get a bigger data set. But if you're pooling data from people who took instruments in multiple languages, you might be making a fruit punch. <laughs> like <laughs> it could be that the instruments just don't produce comparable scores or the respondents didn't interpret them the same way. And so that's kind of the next step for me is thinking about how can we take existing methods and scale them up and create research pipelines that researchers can use in replications to say, okay, I've got an existing instrument. I'm using it in my replication. I want to make sure that it's measuring the same thing as the original study. How do Mm -hmm. I do that? What's an analysis pipeline that I can use to run the instrument through that? And how do I interpret or think about, this is something I haven't figured out yet, but I'm thinking about how do you interpret the results of your replication study if you don't have measurement? comparability. Mm-hmm. How, how do you think through that? So in the accelerator, we're getting started on the, we have all the data, we have two instruments translated into 23 languages. And we're trying to do a registered reports format, we hope to submit one of them in the next month or so to run all these translated versions through an a priori psychometric investigation. Wow. We'll see how it works. It's, it's way more complicated when you try to do it so many times, and you try to plan it ahead of time. I think that quantitative methods folks haven't really engaged with how we do structural equation modeling and psychometrics, how we plan those analyses. Mm-hmm. You know, they're like, oh, no, I just need to try it out. <laughs> I just need to look at the data first to see it. there's this art uh, to structural mm-hmm. equation modeling. So we're trying to say, well, what if you didn't have the data and you wanted to make a, a protocol? What would you do? what analyses would you do and how would you make decisions? And and that has been a lot harder than I anticipated. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping that the reviewers will give us some good ideas for ways to improve the protocol, but hopefully the psychological science accelerator can become a place that produces large scale data. That's more representative than studies that any researcher can run on their own and also produces materials and analysis pipelines that other researchers can use and in other languages. So supporting researchers that are in countries that don't have as much research capacity. That sounds super exciting and a tremendous service to the field. So thank you for working on it. And I'm excited to, to see where you end up and, and how we can um, better integrate it into everyone's work. Because um, the science will be better when everyone's taking advantage of all the wonderful things that you've identified here. Yeah, well, thank you. It's crazy to be a part of a startup, but you know, that's one of the perks of the gig is that I get to work on things that I'm interested in and passionate about. So Jessica, I think that's a great place for us to wrap it up today. Thank you so much for your time. I really encourage our listeners to check out your 2021 article in Educational Psychologist entitled Strengthening the Foundation of Educational Psychology by Integrating Construct Validation into Open Science Reform. Um, But again, Jessica, thanks so much for talking to me today. Yeah, thank you for having me.